0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perez, former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off: U.S. versus China
1: Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 49. Last week, we spent the episode following the journeys of the German and British fleets that were destined to meet at the Battle of Cornell off the coast of South America. This week, we will jump right into the confrontation before spending some time discussing Aftermath. After the Aftermath, we will follow the fate of Spee's squadron after they rounded the southern tip of South America and started to make their way north just to quickly review the two squadrons that were going to meet each other. Spee had two armored cruisers, the Scharnhorst and Nisenau, along with three light cruisers, the Leipzig, Dresden, and Nürnberg. Facing him was Craddock, with two armored cruisers, the Good Hope and Monmouth, the light cruiser Glasgow, which I think I erroneously called an armored cruiser last episode, and the armed merchant cruiser Otranto. After Craddock left the Falcon Islands with his ships, he went through the Straits of Magellan and into the Pacific Ocean, where he began to make his way north. As they got closer to each other, they were both using the limited number of wireless transmissions from the other group to close in on each other. You can think of it like a game of Marco Polo, with each wireless transmission made by either side it's like calling out Marco or Polo to give a clue to their location. Both sides knew that they were playing this game, and as such, they both subtly manipulated the situation to their advantage. On the German side, Spee played a game where he made sure that all wireless transmissions were sent by the Leipzig. He would communicate what he needed to send to the men aboard the Leipzig by signal light or signal flag, where they would send it out, for all messages, no matter what. He hoped that this would obscure the true size of his squadron from the British, and it actually did work. As Craddock moved north, he fully believed that he was moving in on just one German ship, a light cruiser named Leipzig. This would be easy pickings for his ships. He hoped to pick off the ship quickly, especially if it was separated from the other ships that he knew that Spee had. Craddock was also very sparing with his wireless communications as he moved in, hoping to completely obscure his ships from the Germans. On November 1st, the two squadrons moved in close to each other and planned for contact with whatever ships they found. At this point, neither side knew the true size of the other enemy squadron. The British still believed that they were only going to face one ship, while the Germans didn't really have any idea at all than that there were ships in front of them, they were British, and they were going to have to shoot at them. The first ship sighted by the Germans was the light cruiser Glasgow, and the British very quickly, began to realize that there were more than just one light cruiser facing them. Spee was confident and continued to close on the British ships. For Craddock, however, the decisions were slightly more complex. First, he had his armed merchant cruiser with him, the Otranto. While searching for what he believed was a single German ship, the Otranto had been a great asset, giving him another set of eyes while searching. Now, however, with several German warships moving in, the Otranto became a liability. It had no chance against even the smallest German ship, so Craddock quickly told it to retreat as fast as it could possibly go. The next problem for Craddock was that his fleet as a whole could not retreat, even if he had wanted to. His ships were slower and stood no chance of getting anywhere safe, unless it was a port where they would be trapped. The groups of ships were only 20 miles from the shore, so getting into a nearby port may have been possible, but it would have meant taking his ships out of the war completely. How the rules of the seas worked was that ships could go into a neutral port, which all of the South American ports were. However, if they stayed there in one of those ports for more than a few days, they would be interned for the rest of the war. This was a way for neutral countries to take advantage, economically, of the war by supplying all the ships of the sea, while at the same time not allowing neutral countries to give more time to one country or another. If Craddock chose this route, it would be seen as a cowardly defeat, which wasn't something that he would do. Also, you will notice that up to this point in the episode, and during the course of the battle, I won't mention the word Canopus. This was the name of the battleship that Craddock also had under his command, and this is because Craddock had pushed ahead in front of the aging battleship, leaving it with his supply ships far from the battle. He had done this because the Canopus, he believed, was just simply too slow. With the ships that he did have, he made the choice to close in and force an action with his grossly inferior fleet. Once he made the decision to move in, he knew that he would have to close in and close in fast, because the light would begin failing soon. It was already after 6 p.m. when the ships were sighted. It was also imperative that Craddock close the distance so that his guns could reach the German ships. His guns couldn't shoot as far as the Germans, so there would be a few thousand yards during which he would be vulnerable, but still unable to fire back. While the slower British ships were closing in, Spee was able to use his speed advantage to move away and edge away from Craddock a bit to delay the fighting, until closer to 7 p.m., This was because Spee also had one big problem, and that was one of vision. The position of the two groups of ships meant that his gunners were facing directly into the setting sun, hardly an ideal position for gunnery. Because of this fact, Spee wanted to wait as long as possible to allow the sun to set, and fortunately for him, this wasn't a problem due to the previously mentioned speed advantage, which kept him out of range of the British. At 6.50 p.m., the sun went below the horizon, and Spee moved in on his prey. At a range of 11,000 yards, Spee told his ships to open fire. The Scharnhorst targeted the Good Hope, the Nisenau targeted the Monmouth, Leipzig targeted Glasgow, and the Dresden was sent to try and chase down the Otranto. The action would now truly begin, an action which Winston Churchill would call, quote, the saddest naval action in the war. After only a few minutes of firing, the Scharnhorst had hit the Good Hope several times, and it was on fire. Just a few minutes later, the Monmouth was in a similar situation, with a fire raging on its deck. As the sun sank completely and it became darker, the flaming British ships became giant lit triangles for the Germans to shoot at. The German ships continued to close in, firing as they came, like wolves approaching their wounded prey. At 7.30, the Monmouth stopped firing. At 7.50, the Good Hope, the flagship of the British fleet, suffered an explosion below decks and sank within minutes. The Germans were now within range of the British guns, but it was simply too late, and the British weren't able to offer any real resistance. There was one British ship still fighting, though, and that ship was the Glasgow, and it was still, somehow, surviving. The Glasgow had first engaged the Leipzig, and then the Dresden as well and then the now on top of the other two. It was dodging back and forth, firing her small guns for all they were worth. But a bit after 8pm though, it became apparent how the fight was going to go. With the two larger British ships out of action, there wasn't much a light cruiser like the Glasgow could do, and it was only a matter of time before it got a critical hit. Captain Luce, the captain of the Glasgow, could see that it was hopeless. And since his ship hadn't been damaged in any important way, he knew that he might have a chance of outrunning the Germans. Before leaving the scene, the Glasgow approached the burning Monmouth to see if there was any assistance that they could render. But Luce didn't feel that his ship could help. Quote, I felt that I could not help her, but must be destroyed with her if we remained. With great reluctance, I therefore turned northeast and increased to full speed. End quote. While the other German ships were busy with the Glasgow, the Nurnberg moved in to finish off the wounded Monmouth. The British ship, even in its injured state, wouldn't strike its colours, the naval symbol for surrender. So the German ship closed in and gave the last final shots. One of Spee's sons, Otto, would be on the Nurnberg and witness this incident. And he would say about it that quote, it was terrible to have to fire on poor fellows who were no longer able to defend themselves, but their colours were still flying, and when we ceased fire for a few minutes they did not haul them down. The Monmouth finally went down a bit after nine p m. From the two largest British ships, the Good Hope and the Monmouth, there were very few survivors. Sixteen hundred Royal Navy sailors went down with the ships. For the Germans, the Scharnhorst and Nisenau had been hit a combined total of just six times, with no major damage. The german light cruisers barely had a scratch among them. The Germans were excited, and after leaving a ship behind to search for survivors, they continued on to the South American coast near Valparaiso. The three surviving British ships, the Otranto, Glasgow, and Canopus, that hadn't even participated in the battle, all retreated towards the Straits of Magellan. The Glasgow and Canopus would reach the Falkland Islands at Port Stanley on November 8th, where they waited to take part in the final stage of our story. The news of the crushing British defeat reached London on November 4th. The reaction was of course one of sadness at first, especially in the press. The loss of so many men of the Royal Navy, which was such a cornerstone of the British society, was tragic. But in the cold calculus of war, it wasn't really a huge setback for the British. In total, they had lost two old armored cruisers, ships that didn't stand a chance against the primary German fleet. And the loss of these two amounted to the smallest reduction of total Royal Navy power. With this being the largest Royal Navy defeat in many, many years, what took the biggest hit was the British naval prestige, something we have talked about so much up to this point. The naval command in London did realize that now they they really had to do something about SPEE, and they needed to stop messing around. The defense and several other British ships in the Falkland Islands, and they had a pretty good chance of beating the Germans should they meet up with them, but the British were not in the mood to settle for a pretty good chance, and so they started looking at what else they could send to decisively mood the odds in their favor. What their eyes landed on were the battlecruisers. The battle cruisers were strong, fast, and had been built specifically to hunt down German armored cruisers. With these facts in mind, the original plan was to send one battle cruiser to the South Atlantic, but that plan was changed just a few hours later, and there would be two that would be sent: the Inflexible and the Invincible. Both of these ships had been built in 1908, and they carried eight 12-inch guns, and had a top speed of 25 knots. One of them honestly, would have been enough to take on both German armored cruisers. These ships had to be practically pried from Admiral Jellicoe's hands. As command of the Grand Fleet, tasked with keeping the German high seas fleet bottled up, he resisted any move that would take away any of his ships. In this case, Jellicoe wasn't given a choice. The two ships were put under the command of Vice Admiral Dovetinster D., and he would be made commander of all the British ships and the South Atlantic when he arrived on station. Sturdy and his ships sailed from England in the first days of November, and would arrive in the Falklands at the end of November. Along with their big guns, they also brought tons of mail and supplies to the ships already on station, which I'm sure made them the most popular ships in the fleet on their arrival. It, the critical fact of their arrival in the Falklands never got to Spee. He didn't know these ships were there. And he would not plan for their participation in the next confrontation. And this would be extremely important.
0: With the Lucky Lands Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts.
1: On the German side, after the victory, Speed took his fleet to Valparaiso to get supplies before moving on. But he wasn't necessarily in a huge hurry. To quote Castles of Steel, quote, there was more than weariness to Spee's procrastination. He was an aggressive, skilled commander in battle, but when he considered the strength of his squadron in opposition to the overwhelming worldwide power of the British Navy, he tended to gloom and fatalism." The German high command wanted Spee to make for Germany, and this was a fine idea, I guess, but it meant going through the entire British fleet to get there, something that had odds that rounded to zero. The commanders of Spee's ships also didn't agree on what they thought the squadron should do. Most of them wanted to get back to Germany, or at least try. But Spee came down firmly against this option, seeing it for the low percentage play that it was. But he also had other concerns about moving into the North Atlantic. First, the ships were running short on ammunition. They had used about half of their stores of shells up to this point, and there was no way for them to replenish them. Unlike coal and food, it was impossible to find shells in neutral ports. The second problem was coal. The German ships, As the German ships moved closer and closer to the North Atlantic and home, the availability of coal would decrease. It would simply be harder to arrange for ships to meet him with fresh coal, and harder for his supply ships to go and find it and bring it back. It would also take time to load coal onto his ships, which meant having his ships stationary for multiple hours in hostile waters. So let's talk a bit more about coal just for a second before moving on. Coal had to be loaded onto ships by hand, off one ship, put into bags, and then moved into the other ship and dumped. This was a long, hot, sweaty, and dusty process, which took a good deal of energy from the men. As I mentioned earlier, the ships went through it at a pretty good clip, so we'd have to coal several times between South America and home. If he coaled as soon as he rounded the tip of South America, he would still need several more full loads to make his way up the Atlantic, and this meant wireless signals out to ships to meet him, which the British would intercept. These messages would include fixed locations where he would be for the lengthy duration of coaling, while waiting for the ships and then loading from them, static locations that the British would know due to the wireless. I'm sure you can see that all of this would be very risky when the Royal Navy is hunting for you even without knowing the fact that the British had broken the German codes, so not only would they have a pretty good idea from the wireless messages, they would literally know the exact latitude and longitude. Spee wrote in his diary around this time on what he thought his long-term plan would be after the Falklands. "...I cannot reach Germany. We possess no other secure harbor." I must plow the seas of the world, doing as much mischief as I can, till my ammunition is exhausted, or until a foe far superior in power succeeds in catching me." As sort of a way of delaying the decision on what to do, once they were in the Atlantic, Speed decided to head to the Falkland Islands and lead a small attack on the naval base there. This was a valid military target. It had a wireless station that the British used fairly often, and it also housed a British resupply station for military ships often used before going around the Cape Horn. So at the end of November, the German ships rounded the Cape and made their way northwards towards the islands. As the Germans approached Port Stanley, Spee sent the Nürnberg and the Neisenau ahead to bombard the harbor. The Neisenau in the Nurnberg approached Port Stanley in the early morning of December eighth, 1914. At 8 a.m., they suddenly found themselves in a situation for which they were not prepared, and that they did not expect. They were under fire. At 11,000 yards, the Canopus, the ship that had been too old to participate in Cornell, began firing on them. After the Canopus had arrived at the islands, it had run aground to act as a fixed gun emplacement, should the German ships show up, and it was at this moment, this one singular moment, that it had its moment in the spotlight. As soon as the Germans determined what was happening, they sent a message to Spee and began to beat a hasty retreat back to the other ships. What Spee could not have known, and would never get a chance to find out, was that this was his one moment to win the battle or really even have any chance at all at doing damage to the British ships. When the two German ships had approached the island, the British ships had been coaling and were immobile. They were sitting ducks in a harbor surrounded by huge clouds of coal dust that obscured all of their vision. If Spee would have attacked at that very moment, with all of his ships, and hit the British as hard as he could have, that was his chance, small but still a chance, that he could have won the day. As I said, though, he could not have known this fact, and all he knew was his ships were under fire from a location where he did not expect to find any warships. He told the Neisenau and Hernberg to break contact and proceed at maximum speed towards him and the other ships. Spee then took all of his ships and began to run. It wouldn't be until 10 a.m. that the British were finally able to move out of Anchorage, but even the two-hour head start that Spee had wouldn't make a difference in the long run. One other small fact that Spee didn't know was that the British had two battle cruisers in their ranks. Two battle cruisers fresh from dry dock in England. They could make twenty five knots, maybe twenty six if they had to. Spee's ships, on the other hand, hadn't seen any port facilities in a very long time, and five months of travel had taken their toll. They were lucky if they could make twenty knots. Five knots is roughly five point seven five miles per hour or 9.25 kilometers per hour for our non-American listeners. So even with a two hour head start, the five knot speed difference would only buy Spee a few hours, maybe. At this point, the Germans didn't know about the battle cruisers, and they wouldn't know until the British ships drew near enough to sea. Then they realized the situation that they were in. Spee would write, quote, the possibility, even probability, that we were being chased by English battle cruisers This was a very bitter pill to swallow. This is one of those moments that you usually only see at sea during the war, and a moment for which I feel truly sorry for the German sailors. They were straight up doomed, and they all knew it. They could not run the British ships forever, no matter how hard they worked, but it would be a slow and agonizing wait for the inevitable as they closed in. Around noon, the British battlecruisers slowed a bit to let the other ships catch up, and to grab a bite for lunch, but they never stopped gaining on the Germans. Just a bit before 1pm, at a range of 16,500 yards, the front guns of the first British ship in line, the Inflexible, opened fire at the Leipzig. These didn't hit, the opening ranging Salvo never does, but it finally forced Speed to make a decision on what to do. From his ship, Spee could see many things. He could see the onrushing British ships, smoke billowing from their stacks, and now the flash of their guns. He could see the Leipzig, beginning to have shells fall all around her. He could see his other two light cruisers, making better speed than the Leipzig, but not fast enough. And he could see his two armored cruisers, and he knew that nothing could save them. So Spee made a decision. At 1.20 p.m., the two armored cruisers, Spee's great war horses, turned to port, while the light cruisers turned to starboard, away from the British. Spee had made his decision. He had turned his armored cruisers right at the British. His plan was to hopefully delay the British long enough that his light cruisers might be able to escape. It was a suicide mission, and Spee was very much aware of this fact. With the decision made, the entire affair became a game of math. The British ships outranged the Germans by a solid 2,000 yards, so to do damage, Spee had to quickly close the distance. He raced towards the British at top speed, he zigged, he zagged, anything to try to avoid the shells that were coming down on him. The British, while at a heavy advantage, had their own problems, though. Due to the wind and their direction of travel, the smoke from their boilers stayed right on top of the ships, hanging like a thick mist, preventing them from properly seeing and shelling the Germans. This meant that the ships had to keep veering away from the Germans at an angle to get out of the haze. This movement often meant that the British would drift too far away from the Germans, preventing either side from firing, so the British would then have to move closer while trying, trying to stay within that magic 2,000-yard buffer. Always, Spee kept moving closer. At one thirty, he was close enough, and he was able to fire at maximum range. After firing several rounds at the British and seeing their smoke problems, Spee raced south, hoping to move away from the British and get some breathing room. The British caught back up at 2.45, and began to open fire once again. Again, Spee raced in close, this time close enough for his ships to use their smaller 5.9-inch guns, as well as their main armament. All this time, though, as the Germans were closing in and firing, they were receiving damage from the British shells, and it was starting to wear the ships down. At least at this moment, they were positioned to do their maximum damage to the British ships, but it was still very much a losing game. The Scharnhorst, being focused by the British ships, soon found itself smoking all along its length from the shells that had hit it. The ship was miraculously still able to make top speed, but it had been hit by something like 50 times by British shells. A sailor on the Invincible would say, She was being torn apart and was blazing, and it seemed impossible that anyone could still be alive. At 4 p.m., it was finally time for the voyage of the Scharnhorst to come to an end. Heavily listing to port, and with her funnel shot away, the ship finally stopped firing. Spee sent his last signal to Nisenau right before the end. Endeavor to escape if your engines are still intact. At 4.17 p.m., its flag still flying, the German ship heeled over and went down. All 860 men aboard went down with the ship. With Scharnhorst down, the Niza now continued to fight. For another two hours, she kept fighting and firing. At 5.40 p.m., the captain gave the order to scuttle the ship. A German sailor on board would say, quote, The men left their stations in perfect order, and the wounded comrades were carried above. "'Hardly any staircases and ladders were left, but the sheet iron crumpled up in numerous places offered the support necessary to climb on deck through the breaches.'" At 602, the Nisenau finally sank. 400 men had made it off, and but only 200 would be rescued by the British. The icy cold water meant that many men succumbed to the cold before they could be fished out of the water. Vice-Admiral Sturdee would send this message to the captain of the Inflexible, who had picked up most of the survivors. Quote, Flag to Inflexible, please convey to command of Nisenau. The commander-in-chief is very gratified that your life has been spared, and we all feel that the Nisenau fought in the most plucky manner to the end. We much admire the good gunnery of both ships. End quote. The Nuremberg and Leipzig were chased down by the British light cruisers, and the Nuremberg sank at 7.30 and the Leipzig at 9.30. With the sinking of the Leipzig, we have come to the end of Vice Admiral Spee's great adventure. They had traveled 15,000 miles from China to meet their end near the Falkland Islands in the South Atlantic. Of the 2,500 men aboard the ships, only a few hundred would survive their date with destiny on December 8, 1914. The Germans had led the British on a merry chase halfway around the globe. They had beaten a squadron over the Royal Navy, which was a rare achievement. But in the end, a bit of bad luck and the inevitability of facing a much stronger foe finally caught up with the German sailors. Thank you for listening, and see you next week.